If you'll, um, if you'll take a look here, as we have prepared for this Good Friday uh, service, I have been praying this for us, uh, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. Let's pray about that together. Pray with me. Almighty God, I thank you so much for this beautiful statement we have about Jesus, and I do pray that my eyes in my heart, that my soul and that of all of my brothers and sisters will be enlightened, that we will understand the power that we have, the incredible blessing we have in Jesus because of Good Friday. And I pray for the many who will study with us or are studying with us that are not believers in Jesus, that they will understand what that verse means by the end of our time tonight. And I pray they will respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We have been studying together and learning from the scriptures that inform the ancient catechism known as the Apostles' Creed. I'd like us to recite it together. Uh, let's go through the Apostles' Creed all together, and we'll just say it slowly, line by line. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, the section we're on tonight is, uh, is here, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. And those statements are built into the very next paragraph in Ephesians 1. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Ephesians. It's a book in your New Testament, kids. It's right after Galatians. It's just before Philippians. Ephesians, go to chapter 1, and we already read verses 18 and 19. We'll come back to those, but let's read 20 through 23. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Remember, by the way, you can uh, quickly download the notes for this message. Just go to the, uh, to the website, thefriscobible.com. You can grab the notes there, print them off. I, I know many of you have already done that. Um, those who were struggling with Facebook, we understand they are having problems on their end. Thank you for joining us on whatever other platform you're with us. You'll see in those notes, the very first headline says, The Invisible Church is Universal Because of Cross and Tomb. Ephesians 1.22, look at that. It shows us that Jesus Christ, his, his church is global. 
everything is under Jesus. He is the head of the church. And, and, and this is the first aspect of what our forefathers meant by the term Catholic when they said the holy Catholic church. The, the Catholic means universal, not, not that kind of universal. Go to, go to the next slide. Catholic doesn't mean that kind of universal. It means universal in the sense that the true church is comprised of peoples from all places. Catholic means the universal church is ruled by no mere human government. It has Jesus as its head. Whatever our differences and our disagreements, Christians are unified. We, we are bound together in one church under one Lord. Our forebears very wisely called this the invisible church. Isn't that cool? They called it that to distinguish the invisible church from the visibly local churches like the one that you and I get to belong to. The invisible church is very real, although it can't be seen. It connects all Christians wherever they may be. Isn't that great? This is a small but important part of what Christians experience when they are on mission trips or, um, or go to camp. Think about it. When people arrive on a mission, some of you have been on mission trips with Frisco Bible. People arrive on a mission. They can't really communicate that effectively. The, the people often don't look alike. There are very real and very serious cultural differences. You see the same thing when a bunch of kids get their assigned cabin at, at camp uh, or when the, the counselors that you host for camp in the city arrive at your house. I mean, everyone's polite, but, but the differences between people seem really massive. But have you, have you watched this? After a few days, everyone who knows Jesus feels that bond we have in him. There's this, there's this invisible organization to which we all belong. Speaking is, is secondary. Differences are less important. We are the universal church, and that is what matters most. In fact, that, that is what our forebears were talking about when they used the phrase Catholic church. It is universal. It spans all space. There's a second aspect that they had in mind using the term Catholic. The church of Jesus is timeless. It, it is timelessness that is the second meaning of that word Catholic. Look in verse 21. You notice in verse 21, Jesus is over his church and over all creation, not just now, but forever. He rules in the age to come. That's that's what that original terminology is trying to capture. The Catholic Church is eternal because its, its resurrected head is eternal. He, he does not move or go away. He doesn't leave you. There is no sense of abandonment ever. The, the Apostle Paul, think of him, and then um, some medieval Christian in Asia, and then John Calvin and the U.S. President John Adams, and the person that I know of who trusted Jesus Christ as Savior in Costa Rica yesterday. Do you know each and all of them are on the exact same team? As is often the case, uh, baseball provides a perfect example. Can we just, can we just have a moment of, of silence for the, uh, the postponement of baseball and the lack of an opening day? Thank you. I, I needed to grieve. Thank you. Now, in baseball... It is astonishing how similar players are all across the eras. I mean, Wee Willie Keeler, uh, he, could, he could hit any fastball or any curveball that any pitcher could throw today. The guy was amazing. Uh, he, his secret, he said, was hit them where they ain't. Um, Christy Mathewson, remarkable gentleman, uh, believer in Christ, great guy. He, he could throw his fastball past Bryce Harper. 
Baseball's remarkable this way. You, you've got Tris Speaker and Ken Griffey Jr. and uh, the few people who were alive to see both of them play said it was like it was like the same person. They just glided through the outfield. And, and the same thing is true for Christians, okay? Each one of us, every one of us, could flourish in some tiny 12th century uh, believer's church. They were really small. And any one of those brethren could be transplanted here, and they could use their gifts to greatly bless our church today. The invisible church connects all Christians wherever and whenever they may be. That's what the creed means in calling us the Catholic Church. The invisible church is universal because of cross and tomb. And I know, that brings up the question that you're posing in your Babe Ruth imitation. Why do you keep saying, because of the cross? Uh, Great question, George. Thank you for asking. I say because of the cross, because Jesus' cross is a scandal that we all have to bear. It unifies us in humility. All must be humbled alike, for one only becomes part of the true Catholic Church by admitting one's need for a Savior. That's the first thing. It is the prerequisite to be a part of this timeless and and spaceless universal church. You must admit your need for a Savior. That is scandalous to human beings because we naturally and foolishly want to try to save ourselves instead of admitting our need for God's rescue. Jesus Jesus exposes this reality in Matthew 21. Take a look, Matthew 21, um, starting at verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures? And he was being very sarcastic there. He knew that audience had. Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done. And it is wonderful in our eyes. By the way, that's a quote from Psalm 118 and from Isaiah 8. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that audience he was addressing, and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Now, I lack the time to dive into this amazing statement in depth. For now, I just want us to focus on the big ideas. Note the big ideas. The prophets had foretold that the Lord's foundation for salvation would be rejected by the religious leaders. In a wonderful twist, God's foundation would nonetheless be miraculously established. Nothing can stop the establishment of Jesus Christ's church. Not the gates of hell can prevail against it. Thirdly, those who who place themselves on that foundation, Jesus is saying that they they are broken so they can be built up, so they can be made whole. And fourthly, those who reject God's offer well, they will be um, irreparably shattered. Back in the 20th century, a, a guy named Michael Card wrote a poem about this really great poem called Scandalon. It captures this really well. Look, look what he said. The seers and the prophets had foretold it long ago that the long-awaited one would make men stumble. But they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill. Who'd have ever thought he'd be so weak and humble? He goes on. Along the path of life, there lies this stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some he is a barrier, to others he's the way, for all should know the scandal of believing. And he wraps with this beautiful chorus. He says, he will be the truth that will offend them one and all, a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many will be broken so that he can make them whole. 
and many will be crushed and lose their own soul. That's why we say, because of the cross. Jesus' cross is the scandal we must all bear. All must be humbled alike, for one only becomes part of the invisible church by first admitting one's need for a Savior. Now, of course, that brings up the Hamilton Porter question that you have. You're killing me, Smalls. Why do you say because of the tomb? Thank you for asking, great Hambino. Uh, looking at Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Let's read that again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Jesus' resurrection provides and proves the power of God for all who believe. We are part of the invisible universal church because we fall on Jesus. We believe in Jesus who endured the cross and conquered the tomb. Little did I know that when I first prepared the outline for this lesson that we would be living it so vividly. I mean, here I am literally teaching an invisible church. And yet, I know, and I hope you know, without a doubt, how very, very connected we are. We are one in Christ. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can open the eyes of our souls to these truths. Take a look at them. We can open our eyes to the hope of His calling. The wealth, this is what verse 18 means, the wealth Jesus finds in us, in us. The wealth of our inheritance in Him the immeasurable greatness of his power and the mighty workings of his strength. That is all real. That is demonstrable through Scripture and through, and through experience. Yes, I know. That isn't what we see with our physical eyes, at least not right now. We see depression, unemployment, illness, theft, death. We, we see people so riddled with fear they are, they are tearing at one another. But that is only the ridiculous temporary working of this world. Jesus promised, remember, he promised that in our short time on this earth, we will have trouble. It's part of the plan. But God amazingly, lovingly offers something far greater and permanent. We see with our physical eyes, depression, unemployment, illness, death, death, fear. But look at what's real. Take the lens of Scripture and look at what lasts forever, the hope of His calling, the wealth Jesus finds in us, the wealth of our inheritance in Him, the immeasurable greatness of His power, the mighty working of His strength. If you dwell on those things, it's like pushing the peace button in your soul instead of the panic button like your culture. Because of the resurrection, the invisible church looks past these temporary afflictions. They're real, but they're temporary. Those who only see this mess, they are crushed and lose their own soul. Those who trust Jesus see the hope and wealth and strength and power of God with us now and forever. All God's people said, amen. Now, look again at Ephesians 1, uh, verse 23. Go to verse 23. Which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. As we say on the right side of the notes, if you're taking notes, believers are bound together because of the cross and tomb. That's what's meant by, in the creed, the communion of the saints. It's the main reason why people took to, to calling what we're about to take later, the Lord's Supper, they took to calling it communion. 
You know, originally it wasn't called communion ever. It was called the Lord's Supper or the Seder. It was part of a larger celebration our ancestors did that was called the Agape Feast. It was instituted to celebrate Jesus' last words at his last Seder when he told us to take these elements in remembrance of him. Since we are told to partake these things together, and since it represents the cross and the tomb, it's the very body and blood of Jesus represented, then over time that Lord's Supper became increasingly called communion. Because of the blood of Jesus and his resurrected body, we who trust him are bound together. We are a holy communion of saints. By the way, quick reminder about the word uh, saints in the creed there. For the first few centuries of, uh, of Christian history, Christians use that word saints the exact same way the Bible does. It's from a Greek word, uh, hagias. It means someone made holy, and it refers to anyone, anyone who trusts in Messiah Jesus for salvation. But sadly, over time, um, saints begin to be used of certain really neat, really remarkable Christians, and an entire superstition grew up around the idea. Back when the Apostles' Creed was formulated, communion of the, state, of the saints still meant the, the bonding that was enjoyed by all Christians. Because of cross and tomb, all believers are bound together. Have you ever felt that? Or at least maybe even a small sensation of what our communion, our bonding means? You know, sometimes we can sense this fascinating spirit of kinship with brothers and sisters everywhere around the world, in every social class, of every age group. I, I don't really know how to describe it well, but maybe a personal illustration can help you um, get a handle on Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Uh, many years ago, my buddy and I stepped off the train um, onto Swedish soil, uh, well, I should say Swedish rock. There wasn't a whole lot of soil there. Um, we came to Sweden to help with a project. Uh, we came from Germany up to Sweden to help with a project, but we didn't know anyone who was involved in this project. When we met our partners in the project, we discovered they, they were very different from us. Um, they were not really into biblical scholarship. Uh, Mike and I were. They could not, these Christians in Sweden, they could not imagine leaving their state church even though none of their pastors were believers in Christ. We, we were helping uh, back in Texas plant a new independent church. They were wildly charismatic Christians. We were not. Get this, those Swedes, the minute they saw the sun peek out from behind a cloud, they would run outside and soak up as much sunshine as they could. Being from Texas, we know that the sun kills. Uh, seriously, we were, we were very, very different from each other. And yet, we could feel that we were bonded. We were brothers. We were blood brothers under one God. We laughed together and ate great chocolate in Sweden. We, we talked and prayed together and ate great chocolate in Sweden. Everyone even became really teary when it was time for us to depart. That is a small sense of what we mean when we say we believe in the communion of saints. Right now, as we endure this great plague in our world and the accepted response to it, we feel very keenly the loss of physical community. Our minds tell us, I imagine yours does, I know mine does, it tells us we're supposed to be packed into the Frisco Bible Auditorium right now, greeting one another. We're supposed to be praying and crying privately with the one who weeps. We're supposed to be laughing with the one who laughs. We're supposed to be singing songs of praise in a large assembly, not trying to study the Bible while toddlers bang on pots in the living room. 
we feel disparate. We feel separated. But that's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Just like we observed with verses 18 through 20, there is this graphic contrast with verse 23. What we see with our physical eyes is emptiness and isolation and loss. And that's understandable, but that is a very nearsighted vision. Look through the lens of Scripture and you instead see fullness. The fullness of a communion of saints that is filled in every way in Jesus. You and I are not empty, no matter what we think we see. We are fully part of the church that is fulfilled in Jesus. Amen? Amen. The last part of the creed we're going to cover tonight says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Um, look up a few paragraphs in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Go up, it's uh, one page in mine, to verse 7, and let's read Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Stop there. Sins are forgiven because of cross and tomb. Now, that word redemption is really, really important. I want you to look here. Look what the Bible says. Before trusting God, every human, the Bible says, was a slave in three ways. A slave to Satan, a slave to sin, and a slave to the fear of death. You can, you can look that up in uh, 2 Timothy 2 and Romans 6 and Hebrews 2 and study it on your own. Here, let Let's do this. Let's act this out. Um, if you're with two or more people right now, let's do a quick illustration of redemption. Uh, if you're solo, you can just laugh at the possibilities. Okay, get the, get the uh, pillow that you got earlier. Let me move my water here. Okay, pick somebody. Got the pillow? Okay. Pick somebody in your home. I, I pick uh, Pastor Jeremy, who is up here. And uh, he is going to be the enslaved one. Pick somebody to be the enslaved person in your home. Okay, and you're going to put them into slavery behind the pillow. All right, this is an immovable pillow. Don't knock the enslaved one. Stop it. Don't knock the pillow over. Okay, do you not know how to pretend? Pretend you cannot move this. This is a wall you cannot break through. Okay, enslaved one. Bang on the pillow, but don't knock it over. See, he's trapped right there. He's trapped. Okay, you got it? All right, good. Now, another person, we'll choose me because we're the only ones over here, will play the part of the redeemer. Now, redeemer. You agree to pay the jailer a price. Okay, just act that out. Here's a gazillion, gazillion, bazillion dollars. Okay? All right, good. Now, you pay that price, and the slave is now, take down the pillow, is now redeemed and goes free. Slave says, hurry. Oh, oh, one more thing. The redeemer has to die. Yep, yep. So, you who played the redeemer, see, you thought you were, you, because that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross. He gave his blood to redeem us. So the Redeemer has to die. But Jesus rose from the tomb. So get up, Redeemers. Give yourselves a hand. That was great. All right. That's what it means when we say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. The only perfect price was paid for them, the very life of Jesus. Now, settle down, settle down kids. Acted it out. Let's settle down. Very good. And get this. The Bible uses four different Greek words for the phrases that are translated as redeem. Uh, in the Bible, you've got these phrases, redeem, redeemed, uh, buyback, purchase, um, and, and redemption. And, and there are four different phrases that are used for all of those. And each one has a slightly different angle. Here's what those four words show us. Look at the slide here. Jesus, this is the first meaning of redeem. 
Jesus went into the slave market and he purchased you so that you, you are now his. You are no longer Satan's property. He paid the ultimate price and then conquered death so you could follow him in everlasting life. Secondly, redeem it means that Jesus purchased you permanently. That sale was final. On the cross on Good Friday, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. The sale is complete. That was a word that was used in a Greek market to represent the sale of something was final. Thirdly, Jesus' purchase of you was 100% complete. Now, speaking to those first three points, my, uh, my old professor had a great comment. I, I placed this in your notes if you got the notes. Uh, Dr. Pentecost said this, God makes it clear that your purchase from the slave market was permanent. You're never going back to that miserable situation you used to be in. Mm -mm. Jesus purchased you permanently and completely through and through. Jesus did not just purchase a 51% controlling interest in you. He did not just purchase 99% of you. Satan cannot pop out of the shadows 10 years from now and say, wait, I still own 1% of them and I'm calling it in. No, Jesus' purchase of you was so thorough and so complete that no one and no thing has any claim on you ever again. Hallelujah. There are four terms for purchase back in the New Testament. Four important shades of meaning. Here, look, look at them here. The first is, when you see redeem in the Bible, it has one of these four meanings. These are the four shades of meaning. Jesus went into the slave market. He purchased you, so you're now his. You're no longer Satan's property. Secondly, Jesus purchased you permanently. Tetelestai. The sale was final. Thirdly, Jesus' purchase of you was 100% complete. And fourth, Jesus purchased you in order to set you free. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free, wrote the Apostle Paul. He didn't purchase you to enslave you again. The riches of Jesus' grace are found in our redemption. Specifically, that those who believe on Jesus, they're forgiven. Their sins are paid, the ultimate price. Lewis Drummond put it this way. Uh, he said, forgiveness transcends finite human reason. The mere thought that one's entire sin account can be utterly eradicated is staggering. Yet it is quite clear that the forgiveness of sins strikes at the very core of human need and experience. It speaks of guilt gone, remorse removed, depression disappearing, emptiness of life eradicated. What power there is in forgiveness. And it all comes abundantly from the gracious hand of God. Close quote. That means that we should live differently. Turn a few pages. You're still in Ephesians. Turn a few pages over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, God lays out the, the practical difference that redemption makes, how we live differently as a result. Look at verse uh, 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. Uh, stop there. Gentiles here refers to pagans. They think they are so wise, but their thoughts are futile. But as a result of redemption, Christians can think differently and live differently. Look, look here, there's a, there's a little summary I put together of how we live since we are redeemed. You are no longer a slave. If you believe in Jesus, you, you are God's adopted child and his heir. You have an inheritance in heaven. Galatians 4 talks about that and Ephesians chapter 1. God has freed you from slavery to be his own possession. And that means because you're God's possession, because you're part of his family, you are a person who is zealous for good deeds. Titus chapter 2 discusses that. 
Thirdly, you're now God's friend. John 15 lays this out. He likes you. And he wants to share life with you. One page over, Ephesians 5 uh, says this about how we live differently because of the cross, because of the tomb. Um, read with me. Would you, you, you join me on the underlined text? For you were formerly darkness. Let's start again. Some of you weren't ready, I'm sure. Let's try again. Ephesians 5, verse 8. You ready? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Pray with me about that. Let's pray, let's pray together. Lord, I pray for anyone studying with us that is not a believer in Jesus, and I beg you to open the eyes of their heart right now. That they get a view of just how dark that prison is, that tripartite prison in which every human being naturally finds himself or herself. And then as Charles Wesley wrote so beautifully, I pray that they will get a glimpse of how thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Let them see the light, literally, of Jesus. Friend, listen, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Fully God is important because he alone could pay that price to get you and me out of the prison that is our natural norm. Fully man because he had to die on that cross and have the miracle of conquering death. We'll talk more about that Sunday. He did that because he loves you to pay for your sin. Trust him right now. Just confess to God that you believe on Jesus alone. You believe in him who died and rose from the dead and paid for your sin. You believe that by believing in him, you are part of the Holy Catholic Church, part of the communion of saints, somebody who has experienced the forgiveness of sins. Talk to God about that right now. And Lord, I pray for all the believers in Jesus, those who are brand new Christians right now and those who have been Christians for a long time and everybody in between. I pray that we will walk in the light, that we will walk in the light, as John puts it, as you are in the light, that, that we will know that we are the light in the Lord and we'll walk as children of the light because that really does make all the difference. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to turn our attention to Pastor Jeremy, and he's going to lead us through the Lord's Supper. So this week, I was checking on some acquaintances, um, seeing how they were doing, the family that we have met, and want to see how they're doing during COVID-19. So I sent a message, said, hey, how you guys doing? What's going on? And the guy answers back and says, we're doing great. Thank you. Uh, how are you? Um, and we kind of dialogue for just a moment, and then he says, I hope this band's lifted soon. It's a perfect waste of spring. And honestly, that comment kind of caught me off guard because I've had a really couple, a great couple of weeks. It's been different. It's been frustrating, yes. But even this week, I got to plant some bushes and trees and flowers and clean out an old flower bed, create a new. I got to have some fun with the kids, watching them on the patio. It's been great. 
But he's right in some ways. It's been wasteful. As Wayne said, we're missing baseball. I mean, how tragic is that? I'm missing my own son play baseball. And we're, we're working through the process of one of ours, our oldest, is graduating this year. And we're working through what it might mean that his ceremony and his party might look different. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're missing is that my wife bought uh, tickets to a concert that I've wanted to go to for a while. And we had to miss it this last weekend because they had to cancel. So there is a sense that this spring is wasted. And what I'm finding in my own life, and I don't know about you, but I'm finding in my own life at these moments, of these feelings of waste, because there is some truth in that, that thought, is that we don't like it when we're not in control. I know I don't. We've talked about that before. As we're processing uh, tonight that it is a good Friday. In the midst of the plague, it's a good Friday, and it's a good because we get to celebrate and remember what Christ did on our behalf. It is because of the cross and the tomb that we get to commune together, that we get to have this time together, even though it might be distance apart. As we were discussing and preparing, Wayne shared uh, with me a quote. This is a quote from Thomas Vincent in 1674. It's actually an answer to one of the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, this West, the Westminster Catechism is a list of questions that talk about the Lord and His Word and how to practically live out faith. And so this pastor answered this way. The question was, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Pastor Benson said, to receive the Lord's Supper worthily is not to receive it meritoriously as if we were to bring any merit or worth of our own thereunto. We receive it worthily when we are in a state of grace by faith, end quote. Again, in the midst of all of this feeling of a waste of time, we get to come together to share communion with one another because of grace, because of the cross and the tomb, the work that Jesus did, on our behalf, to save us from our sins. So get your elements together, and let's take together. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus was eating that Passover meal, that he broke the bread, and he distributed to them and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that now. cup. I said, this is the blood of the covenant. This blood was spilled on your behalf and my behalf. This is what we get to celebrate, that our sins are forgiven because of his spilled blood. Let's drink in remembrance of him. Amen. Pastor White would like to pronounce a benediction for us. And then I had just one quick thing to share with you and we'll, uh, we'll call it a good Friday. Let's have the benediction. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which applies spiritually, whether we physically go anywhere or not. And may we walk in the light because of the tomb, 
because of the cross. Because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name.